True righteousness, true goodness is to hear God speak and believe it. That is ultimate blessing. The almighty and eternal God says this and you hear it and know it's true. That is ultimate blessing. That is eternal life itself. I don't mean to say only that to hear God is eternal life, but eternal life is when you hear God. Now, Paul has been emphasizing this justification by grace through faith throughout his entire book to the Roman Christian congregation made up of both Gentile and Jewish Christians. Now here at the back in chapter 9 through 11, he is emphasizing how this is true even though there are many who will never believe this. Even though the way is wide that leads to destruction and many are on it, while the way is narrow that leads to salvation and few will find themselves on it, even though that is true, God's word has not failed. Even though the promise is given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David and to Solomon, through prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, to a people who were called the Jews because their bloodline meant they had these promises, even though many of them in Paul's day rejected Jesus Christ as their King and Messiah, that doesn't mean that God's word has failed just because they refuse to believe it. And as Paul is going to point out, he believes it. He's a Jew. So it's not as though Jews can't be saved or Jews are any worse off or worse people than anybody else. Quite the opposite. You have two types of people. You have those who believe, the remnant, and you have those who do not believe, uh, well, the reprobate, the condemned, the, the natural fleshly man. Here in chapter 11, he's going to really test us, though. I mentioned before how chapters 9 through 11 are, they're pretty tough chapters. I mean, they're they're heady. They're intellectual chapters. You don't just to get a float along and kind of see Jesus do some miracles. You have to think about a few things, and, and you're going to find out that some of that thinking runs into a brick wall called the hidden mystery of what God doesn't want you to know. A major part of that is the idea of election. Election being, very simply, God saves, man damns. You only get saved because God saves you. You only get damned because you damn yourself. Now, that doesn't mean God won't be the one who sends you to damnation, but it's because you choose to go there. The people who go to hell are obstinate about how they won't go to heaven. They refuse to believe. Remember how Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and says, I would gather you. I'd be like a hen going after her chicks. You ever seen that? They're pretty pushy about it. I would do that to you, but you would not. As we heard in the gospel reading again a few moments ago, how even one saved person causes all the angels in heaven to rejoice with gladness. That's who our God is. And we might ask them, well, how come more aren't saved? Again, that's what we don't get to ask. Do you think his plan is imperfect? Do you think the God who's achieved this doesn't know a better way? What we have before us is the way that it is. And what's most beautiful of all is that he is saving you. Not just you alone. Us. You plural. This remnant. This first fruits. This group of humanity who will not burn. But will be the sons of God. 
and the life in the world to come. All right, so before spending too much time without any text, let's dig into chapter 11, starting at verse 1. It starts on page 946 of your pew Bible. He's going to, again, bob and weave through a few complex things here. The first section isn't too bad, though. He asks in verse 1, I ask, has God rejected his people? That is, has God made it so there are no Jews who will ever be saved again? And his answer, by no means. His reason, for I myself am a Jew. It says Israelite there, but what he means is I'm a Jew. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So it's not as though Jews can't be saved. Although contrary to what many evangelical Christians believe, they can't be saved without Jesus. They're not saved because they're Jews any more than you're saved because you're a Gentile. They're saved by Jesus. So that means God's not rejected them. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He has not chosen anybody beforehand to not be saved. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Now here we're really going to get into this remnant idea. But Paul's point here, before we talk about it at all, is he means in his day, while you might look upon the Jewish people and say that they're rejecting their Christ, and many of them were, that didn't mean that all of them were, the right amount were being saved. We want to apply this today to everybody, not just to Jews, to all people. But the idea, again, initially is there were certainly a remnant of Jews who were Christians that made up the heartbeat of the early Christian church. And even to this day, it's not as though there are not Jews for Jesus and Messianic Christians out there. And the fact that many of them have Baptist theology, well, that's that's worth talking to them about, honestly. Um, But they are there as Christians. Okay, so the bit about Elijah. Don't you know the story of Elijah? How he said to God, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Now, Elijah's story is kind of amazing. He saw quite a few miracles in his day. But he also was living under the reign of Jezebel. You remember this lady? I mean, she made it a habit to put prophets to death if she could. She wanted them killed. And she had driven Christianity as Israelite religion out of the northern kingdom almost entirely. Elijah himself has to flee for his life and hide in the desert and live in another place during a famine, all sorts of stuff. But the end result of this for Elijah is he thinks it's over. This is the key. He thinks it's over. He thinks he's alone. He thinks there's no one left but him. Now, I I don't think that you have ever had the thought, I'm the only Christian left. You probably have not had that thought. Although I know there's not a few Lutherans out there who have had the thought, and there's only a couple of us left, and I'm not sure about the rest. Uh But the issue here is more feeling like the church is losing. Now, I know if you've been a member at St. Paul for more than 10 or 15 years, you've had that thought. Because there was definitely a time in our life together when it looked like we were losing. We were declining in membership. The school was struggling. We couldn't pay our bills. We were trying all sorts of things to get it to work. We'll leave that for another time. But I'll just, like, why? But let's just stick with, we felt like we were losing. So I know some of you have been there. I also know that if you spend any time, any time, listening to the narrative about what's going on on our planet and in our country, 
broadcast to you by atheists and pagans and a lot of perverts, honestly, well, then you certainly feel alone. I can tell you for a fact that the goal of the majority of mass media is to make you feel alone. They want you isolated so that you trust them rather than your neighbor. Because if you talk to your neighbor, you might find that you both disagree with the big story that's being told. They don't want that. They can't herd you that way. And so they need to isolate you. So, and this is the fact, it doesn't matter whether you're in Jane's Revenge, that horrible group that's out there doing the violence of crisis pregnancy centers, or whether you're ready to march for the March for Life, both groups feel isolated. They feel like they're shoved into a corner. They feel like they have nowhere else to go. I contend again, this is the way they're managing us as a people. They're keeping us separated from each other. And so for we Christians, we're going to pick up on this because we live here. So we're going to feel like we're not many left, like we're kind of alone. Now, it should encourage you that as you watch these pro-life laws fall into place across this country, which has had abortion as the law of the land for 50 years, go look at how many states have laws against abortion right now, and you might not feel so alone suddenly. You might realize the story you've been listening to makes it sound like we're smaller than we are. And that's what happens again when you look at yourself. That's the emphasis here for Elijah. Elijah, you're not alone. Look what God says to him. God's reply, verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that 7,000 there is a special number. It's a, it's a significant, it's a symbolic number. I'm not saying it wasn't actually 7,000. For all I know, it was actually 7,000 too. But I know it means more than just 7,000. Seven is the number of holiness. Ten is the number of completion. These are both biblical realities. And three is the number of God, the Trinity. So 10 times 10 times 10, that's 1,000. So God's completion times 7, God's holiness and God's church, 7,000. God knows his holy people who he has set apart, and not a single one of them is missing. That was as true then as it is true today. He has kept 7,000 for himself. So rather than sit there and say, I'm alone, no one's with me, remember, you've got the Almighty God on your side before you have your neighbor. And then there are definitely neighbors in Christianity that you have. So too, that's it. Verse 5, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul's point is a remnant of the Jews, but he doesn't just mean that. He means this is always the way it's going to be. There will always be a small number of the grand total who remain believing. And this goes for, have you heard this language about the visible and the invisible church before, it's, it, it can be a little bit of a confusing language, but you know, like right now you might think that, well, golly, you know, back in 1800, they had morality and, and the churches were full. They were, they were filled with people and just everyone was better back then. Well, first off, it's not as true as you think. There was still a major, major percentage of the population that didn't go to church, but even those that did, it didn't mean they believed. Now, I'm not the one to sit there and judge. Jesus will be the judge, but I know the judgment is there was only a remnant. There was only a small contingent that actually believed. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. So the real lesson here is to not be surprised when we're not the majority population. Don't be surprised when not everyone wants to hear what you have to say because it's in the Bible. Don't be surprised that you are set apart from the masses. Hmm? Verse 6 gets back to the main point of the whole book. 
He mentioned the remnant is saved by grace. Now he wants to make sure you don't forget. Verse 6, if it is by grace, it's no longer by works. Now, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and even 8, were really about salvation by grace or faith. That means not by works. That means you don't do it. He does it. Because, I mean, duh, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Like, if I give you a birthday present and I tell you to pay me for it, like, that wasn't a present. Okay, well, then a present's not a present. Then grace is not grace. So the remnant exists by grace. We don't make ourselves stand. We are, as he's going to talk about in a moment, branches attached to a vine, to a root. And from the root comes the blood, which gives us life. Yeah. But that that life, which is grace, it it does set us apart. And it will make you see and be and feel differently than the rest of the world around you. All right. So back to his question about the Judaism, and did it fail? What then, verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So Judaism, by itself, as a religion, failed. He said this last week. Why? Because they tried to do it by themselves. They tried to climb up a ladder to God rather than believe that God was sending himself down to them. But just as much as they have failed, those who climb to God have failed to ascend to Christ, so also the elect have received it anyway. And here's this language of election. What does he mean by elect? I know you you kind of have a concept. You go to a place, there's a box, you take a ballot, there's a computer. You take a ballot, you shove it into the computer, and you hope the computer's not hooked up to the internet and changing the vote, right? Uh, I mean, that's where I'm at at least. But, But the idea is you're going and you're making a choice. So who are the elect? They are the people that God chose. Not the people he offered an opportunity for. Not the ones he gave a chance. He chose you. So those who choose their own works choose themselves and are not chosen. Those who are chosen know that they are chosen. The rest are hardened, he says. And this is again the challenge. So you have the remnant and you have the hardened. We talked about this with Pharaoh in chapter 9. Well, does that mean that from eternity, God has hardened them? No. It means that since the fall, all of us have been consigned to hardening. And now the voice of choosing is coming in to all and saying, I choose you, but only some are believing. And those who do not believe are hardened more. Now, here's the key to this, if you want to get the intellectual side of it. They're not hardened apart from words like he is risen. They are hardened by those words. God doesn't come and proclaim the gospel, and then after you don't believe it, harden you. You're hardened by the gospel when you don't believe it. People don't hate the law, you shall not murder. Granted, there are people who want to get away with it. But if you say don't murder, they go, of course not. But people hate the grace of God in forgiveness of sins. They hate it. They're hardened against it. Now, he quotes then some Old Testament passages about this hardening, one from Deuteronomy and one from the Psalms. First from Deuteronomy, verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you harden yourself against the gospel, the gospel's hardening of you is indeed God's judgment on you, and it makes it worse. 
There are places where Jesus says things about the Pharisees, like, if I had not come, they wouldn't have even been judged. But now that I've come and they say they see, now they're blind. Huh? So God is at work to do a hardening upon those who don't believe. This is, this is step one of our learning this morning, right? There is a hardening. God does it. David says it just as well. You go look up this prayer as David prays it. It's pretty intense. It's like against his enemies. and I mean, It's intense. Psalm 69. Go, go look it up this afternoon. But here is the quote, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's David praying against his human enemies. And it's there for you to pray against your human enemies. In the understanding that in Christ, your only real enemies are enemies of Christ. And so you're praying against those who hate Christ. And understanding that Christ would have them turn and repent. So it's not saying don't save them. It's saying if they won't be saved, then crush them. If they refuse to believe, then destroy them. Why? Because they've chosen the side of the demons. They've made that their dwelling place in their heart. And so indeed, on the last day, when God destroys the demons, which I sure hope you have no problem with, on the last day, when he destroys the demons, all those people are like, we want to go with the demons. Like, you're going to let them go. You're going to say, hallelujah, destroy them forever. Send them to that awful place. Huh? Now, verse 11 is really key, though. I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Like, is the whole thing just about sending people to hell? Is the whole idea that some just have to be punished? No, that's not the point. Not at all, even. By no means, he says. You know, really, not at all. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. It's getting intellectual now. It's getting heady. Are they hardened into their falling so they'll fall? No, they're hardening into their falling so that you'll believe. Those who believe are helped in their belief by the unbeliever being stuck in his place. You just have to believe that again. I started this by saying that the righteousness of God is hearing what God says and trusting it. And what he says is that everybody who's going to hell is to help you believe. Is to make it so you do believe. And so if there are some Jews in his day who don't believe in Christ, it's so that everybody else will believe in Christ. And in fact, you watch, the, the way the gospel was spread out of Jerusalem, you know how it was spread? Persecution. They were driven, the, the Jewish Christians who did believe were driven out amongst the nations. Huh? So again, the hardening always happens for the good of the elect. And again, you just have to, you have to write that one down and just believe it. The hardening, the unbeliever, when your brother, when your friend, when your, when your uh, extended relative or neighbor, when they say, I won't believe, you have to know that's for the good of the church. It doesn't mean don't say, Jesus, can you bring this person to faith? Jesus, can they repent? That too, that too. It's not either or. But if they will not believe, it's for the good of the church, which means you in Christ. Yeah? So, Again, as to make, rather than through the trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Notice, so as to make Israel jealous. That's the end of verse 11. So they have been hardened 
to drive the gospel to the nations. The nations are believing, not so that the Jews would remain hardened, but so the Jews would believe too. That having believed the gospel that was rejected, you turn around and speak it to them. And then some of them will believe. What is going on is every bit of evil that we do, God is turning it back to his good. That's the end of this. Everything that we're doing, we're like, I'm going to be evil. He's like, yeah, yeah, watch. It won't ruin my plan. I'm just going to save more of you as a result. So then, and he says, verse 12, if their trespass, that is the Hebrew people rejecting Jesus, means riches for the world, which it does in Jesus Christ's resurrection, and if their failure, that is to believe, means riches for the Gentiles, that is you, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Have you ever met somebody who really knows like Judaism, like their Hebrew Bible, who's a Christian? I've only met one. I know people who have like a Jewish background or whatever. I've only met one man who like knew Hebrew, read the Hebrew Bible, had been a rabbi and was a Christian. I'll tell you what, that guy could talk about Jesus. Man, could that guy talk about Jesus. He understood Jesus in the Old Testament like I can only dream. So how much does their full inclusion mean? A lot, a great deal. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, you nations, you not Jews, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to you, not Jews, Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, verse 14, in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. That is, again, his goal is not that anybody would not believe, but that they would be turned to belief. And so if he has to emphasize the fact that they've rejected the faith, then he'll emphasize that fact that they might hear and believe. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, that is because the Jews didn't believe and so the gospel's gone out to us, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? How much more valuable is it? Again, when a sinner turns and believes, no matter what their racial background might be, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. All right. That's a really key, mysterious verse there. The dough that's offered that's holy, that makes the entire lump holy, is the Christian church existing as an extension of Jesus Christ, making all mankind set apart. Or let me, let me say this a different way. Why does God let things go on right now? Why does he let evil men continue to do evil things? Well, because there are Christian men and women, good believing people that are here. And so for their sake, he gives more grace. And from and through them comes that grace to those who don't believe. So the, the, the lump that is holy, you, the Christian church, makes the whole world, the whole human race holy. All humanity is set apart in Jesus Christ, not just those who believe. And does that mean that all are going to be saved? No, it, it doesn't mean that. But it means God is having mercy on all of us. He's not doing to the earth what he could be doing to the earth. He's not sending the punishment that we entirely deserve. He's staying his hand with much perseverance because of the holy love. And then it's more clearly about Jesus then with that next part of the verse, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Because when I say the Christian church, I don't mean us without Jesus. I mean us in Jesus. 
And so as he is the vine and you are the branches, as you can do nothing apart from him, as he is the way and the truth and the life, the resurrection, all these things, so then all of us are bought, paid for, and called to be in him. Hmm. Now, rather than dwell on this mystery much longer, although he will come back to it, he's going to make sure that the primary danger to you, Christian, is dealt with. And that's that you begin to think too highly of yourself. I, I mean, I, I really am tired. I really am tired of the idea. How do I say this? They have done. <laughs> Here we go, tangent. You ever think about every time you say they, like, what are they, they going to come up with next? What are they going to do next? What are they going to say next, right? And it's, who, who is that? You ever wonder if maybe it's the demons? Try that next time you hear somebody say that. They say, they. say, what if that were demons? Anyway, I'm tired of where they've got us, where the big concern right now is like what my ethnicity is. I think this is the most ridiculous argument for Christians especially. What are you talking about? Why, why, why does it even matter? Why are we concerned with our bloodlines as if that's the thing that makes us good or bad? And the fact that so much of the conversation in this country has become about that shows you how ignorant we are of what Christ has done to break down the dividing wall of hostility between all tribes and families everywhere. Very, very key. Now, how did I get there? Goodness, Jonathan. Um, ah, pride. Pride. Ah, and that's how, because I have to address this. I don't want to. I'm, I, I'm always afraid when I say the word Jew that someone's going to think I'm being racist. It's like ridiculous. I, I, you can't talk about it without someone thinking, oh, it's a racist thing. I guess that's where I'm so frustrated. Look where they've got us. We can't even acknowledge that we exist as different peoples without somehow it being hate. It's really awful. So the point here, though, is there have been people who have hated the Jews, right? I mean, there have been people who just just because they're the Jews. And in fact, they've used Christianity as their excuse. They've been like, well, they were the ones that killed Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus. The Jews betrayed him to the Romans. That kind of like speaks for everybody, doesn't it? And don't you know, I mean, who put the nails in his hands? You did. So if you don't know that, don't go talking about my religion and how it's about hating Jews. You're going to hear this more and more. White supremacy, blah, 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 Christian. They put it in the same breath. It's wicked what they're doing with that. Paul's point here is don't do that. Have a little humility. Know that you are not special because of who you are, but because of who you are in Christ. So that if some of the branches were broken off, if there were Jewish people who didn't believe so that the rest of the world can come to faith, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Shouldn't look down on anybody, ever let alone and especially somebody who is an unbeliever. So here the Jewish talk here, not as about being Jewish by blood, it's about those who reject Jesus Christ. 
And if some people have rejected Jesus Christ, been hardened, so that you, the elect, can believe, does that mean you get to look at them as if they're worse than you? No. And in fact, that's the only way that you threaten your own faith is you start to think that you're better than those who don't believe. The last thing Christianity teaches is that Christians are better. We're saved, not better. We want something better. We want a world filled with goodness, but we're poor and miserable at heart. We know our our wretchedness. Our sin is ever before us in these things. So verse 19, this is what you're not supposed to do. You will say, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in, right? They don't believe so I can believe. Look at me. No, don't do that. It is true, but the emphasis here is not on what is intellectually true so much as what you do with that truth. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast if you do through faith alone, not because of anything else. Remember, faith is a work that God works in you. He's the one who wills you into faith. So, verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, that isn't meaning to say that you Christians aren't going to be spared. It's meaning to say that if you start thinking it's about you, he will treat you with the same justice that he gives to anybody else who wants to stand up and boast in his presence. So don't. Don't boast in his presence. Note instead the kindness and the severity of God. I think this is my favorite verse about election in the Bible. Election is about the kindness and the severity of God. Severity, he says, Oh, I lost it. There it is. Where is it? Severity, middle of verse 22, toward those who have fallen. Notice it's in the third person. When he's going to talk about the damned, he talks in the third person. They're not here. They. Right. Severity toward them. But then when he talks about God's kindness, second person, rest of the verse, but God's kindness to you. You want to understand election, it's about how God says to you, you're saved. What about those who won't be saved? It's very sad. They won't be saved. They don't love God, but you are. So if I'm in a conversation with somebody who says, I'm not sure I believe, I'm going to say to you, well, you should. I'm not going to talk in the third person about how they're the reprobate. I'm going to say instead, God has died for you. Christ has saved you. He has died for all, including you. Yeah. This is why, uh, sucker punch, Calvinist tulip theology just won't work. I won't explain that unless you ask me later. I'll tell you why. But... All right. Note the kindness and the severity of God. God is both just and the justifier. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, provided you continue in his kindness. So again, without that kindness, without that grace, without that mercy, if it's about pat yourself on the back, like you're already cut off. And even they, verse 23, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. That is to say, no Jew is not able to believe because they're a Jew. It is to say no unbeliever is not able to believe because they're an unbeliever. God can give them faith. It's about, again, the mystery of his election. He's trying to, and they're resisting. But it's not as though once someone falls away, they can't come back. He can graft them in again, that's what he says. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? That is, again, about Jewish believers make great Christians because they have a great knowledge of the Old Testament. And then also, anybody who's grown up in the faith and falls away, if they come back, they're going to have a good understanding of what's happened. It's, it's going to be 
stronger in some ways than those who convert as adults who are like infants in the faith in their mid 30s, 40s, and 50s. I mean, I can got—I don't want to take too much time, but a little story about that. I, 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 I drifted. I, I fell away from the faith, so far as I'm aware of it. Uh, in my, I don't know, somewhere between 14 and 21, somewhere in there it started. It definitely lasted up until 21, 22, when I started coming back. And what blew me away when I came back was how much of the Bible I knew. Like I, I never really in my life gave a thought to I care about this thing, not once. And even as, as a child where I think I did have faith, I didn't, I didn't care. Uh, and yet, because I had been in basically a Lutheran school where they made me memorize Bible verses, and I'll tell you how I did it too. It was due on Friday. So Friday morning, I'd open up the book right before class and I'd go five, six, seven, eight times, go up, say it fast, I'm done, it's gone. Well, I thought it was gone. I thought it was gone. I came back to faith in my 20s. Oh my goodness, there's a verse about that, isn't there? And I'd look it up and yep, there sure is. So again, that's the idea that bringing someone back to the faith, it's a great thing. It's natural. So now that you've been converted in, don't look down on anyone. Again, I'm repeating myself because it's the same thought. All right. Lest you be wise in your own sight, verse 25. That's the warning. Proverbs 3, verses 6 and 7, by the way, being quoted there. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Right. So to keep you humble, remember that God knows more than you do. And this is a mystery I'm talking about. That is, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God has consigned those who rebel to being hardened so that the good news will go further amongst those who do believe. You just have to believe it. And that included, especially in his day, the Jews who rejected Christ and Christianity so that it would get shoved out to everybody else. In this way, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Now, that does not mean all Jews. Some people take it that way. They, they undo everything Paul just said for three chapters. Like, oh, look, all the Jews are going to be saved. It doesn't say that. It means all Israel, all those who are children of Abraham, all those who are saved by grace through faith will be saved. The elect will be saved. Those God has chosen, again, that's you, will be saved. All Israel has nothing to worry about and can know that even those who don't believe is for our benefit. Does that mean we want to be happy they don't believe? No, but we can know it's for our benefit. We can trust that God has it under control. As it is written, the deliverer will come out from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's what Jesus did. He took away our sins. So as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That is an unbeliever. He's talking about the Jews specifically, but any unbeliever can be used here. The unbelievers are enemies for your sake, for the sake of the gospel. All the people right now who are screaming about how they love to murder babies. I don't know if you've seen those videos. That's a thing and a half. People were screaming, I love murdering babies. Like they are doing that thinking it's for their own good and to destroy you, but it's actually going to make you stronger. It's going to make you trust in Jesus more. God will turn it for the good. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That is to say, the promises given to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still apply to everybody. Not just the Jews, to everybody. There's nobody to whom the promises of the ancient covenant don't apply. I will send a seed born of woman. He will crush the ancient servant under his feet. That applies to everybody. They're still beloved for that reason. 
For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's not going to take away his promises. Verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Do you believe? Yes. Are there unbelievers? Yes. Did they have unbelief so you would believe? Yes. So now what? Since you believe, tell them about it. You believe so that they might believe. Will they all? No, but some will. That's how the mystery works. For God, verse 32, this is huge, so it sums it all up. God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. All mankind fell in Adam's fall. Nobody gets to escape that. He has put us all on the same path, which is walking a wide road to destruction, which will harden itself if it is not changed by him. And he has sent the Holy Comforter into the world through the words, he is risen. Alleluia. He has sent the Holy Comforter in the world to change hearts from that wide road to the narrow road. And those on the narrow road continue singing Alleluia, trusting that even though they are a remnant and they will only ever be a remnant, the right ones who are believing will be called out of darkness and be saved by that voice. But what about those others? You just got to ask it, right? And you want to. Well, his answer, you don't get to ask it. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So at what point are you going to admit, I'm just a creature, he's God? He knows I don't, but I want to know. Well, you know, too bad. You wanting to know, that's your flesh. That's the reason we got in this problem in the first place. The depth and the riches and knowledge of God, that's the reason to rejoice. You mean, I have a God who knows more than I'll ever understand? Yep. That's good news. A God who you cannot, a God who you can think around, a God who you are bigger than, is not much of a God. A God who you're not afraid of can't protect you. You follow that? If you want a God who can protect you, you have to be able to be afraid of him. He has to be bigger than you are. And so here again, Paul is rejoicing and going, oh, the depth, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Look how much bigger he is than us and the meaning of it is mercy. The meaning of his greatness is mercy. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. And he quotes the Old Testament again to make sure you know he's not making this up. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Nobody gets to tell God what to do. He knows what to do. He's doing what, be- what is best. He desires all people to be saved. Only a remnant will be saved. That is wisdom. Trust him. That is goodness. Trust him. Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? You don't get to earn this. You don't get to pay him back. You don't get to make a bargain. Nobody does. And this is good news. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There's fascinating stuff there, but I want to close this morning by by looking at the next two verses, chapter 12. We'll, We'll look at these again next week. But the results now. Three weeks, 9, 10, and 11, dealing with this really heady thing of election and this mystery of God's power and the fact that he's almighty is going to punish without partiality those who don't believe. But you believe, and that's because he chose you to believe. And everyone else who doesn't believe, that's even helping you believe because he wants to save you because he loves you. Now what? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, meaning on behalf of what I just said, I appeal to you, I ask you, brothers, 
We're related now in Jesus. By the mercies of God, that's what you've just learned to trust in, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is to know you don't belong to yourself and actually, yes, offer yourself to God. Again, this is not like a bargain. God, I'll do this if you. No, because God has now, say to Jesus, I'm yours now. I belong to you now. Offer your body. This isn't just your soul. This is all of you, everything that you are. I appeal to you, offer your body as a living sacrifice. What's a sacrifice? Well, it's when you give something up. It's when you don't get what you want, right? So if you're going to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, it means you're going to say, do with me as you will. Teach me to give up myself so I might be more like what you need me to be. That's holy and acceptable to God. He then calls this your spiritual worship. To worship Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit is to know that you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And so you offer yourself as a person to God. Now, there's more to this though. It's not like you want to do this by crawling around in the dust or something. There's a very specific way to offer your body as a spiritual act of worship, as a living sacrifice to God. That's verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. That is, don't be like everybody else's story but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, know the word of God and keep it. Ah. Transformed in the head by the good spell story of Jesus Christ, by the pure silver, holy gold, sweet honey nectar of the scriptures that cannot fail you because they are Jesus' spirit in you, regenerating you away from, again, stories of darkness and despair and depression and hate into the story of how God is rejoicing because you're his now. Be transformed by the scriptures so that by testing that is as you walk, you may discern what is the will of God. You know the way to go, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, which is, of course, that you hear his word and believe it. In the name of Jesus, amen.